Father Thomas Joseph White is a professor of theology at the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception, which is the long name for the Dominican Council Studies. Uh, Father Thomas Joseph has done studies at Brown University, at Oxford, and at our very own Pontifical Faculty. Uh, he entered the Order of Preachers in 2003, was ordained a priest, been a priest for five years. Um, his teaching and his research has focused particularly on topics related to, to Thomistic metaphysics and Christology, as well as Roman Catholic and Reformed ecumenical dialogue. So he has published, some of you may have seen or read or written theses on, uh, Wisdom in the Face of Modernity, and then he has a, a work on Christology that's forthcoming from Catholic University Press called The Incarnate Lord, a Thomistic Study in Christology. He has also edited and co-edited a number of volumes of essays. A couple of them are The Analogy of Being, um, in Invention of the Antichrist or Wisdom of God, question mark, and Thomas Aquinas and Karl Barth, an unofficial Catholic Protestant dialogue. Um, Father Thomas Joseph is a great lover of Flannery O'Connor. He's been known to recite plays, uh, excuse me, recite her stories in an almost unintelligible southern dialect. So you might be able to catch that at some point in this talk, or you almost certainly won't. Um, he also <laughs> plays the mandolin, the mandola, the dulcimer, all things bluegrass, very delightfully. Um, great priest, spiritual father to many of us at the house. Please help me to welcome Father Thomas Joseph. The vocation director, Ben Kroll, is here. Have you noticed how he's tall? Everyone he recruits is tall. I mean, I'm surrounded by these tall people, but they're very kind. They're very kind. Thank you very much, Brother Gregory. Thank you to all of you who came out this night. Um, I, I feel somewhat um, guilty because I feel like I'm not going to respond to your inner desire for happiness uh, because that's not really the subject of my talk per se. I'm going to talk about happiness. But actually, the subtitle is the key to tonight's talk, The Promise of Thomism in the Modern Church. Um, what I really want to do tonight is give a little charter. It's just an attempt. I haven't really tried anything like this, but I want to give a little thumbnail sketch, a little charter of the, the, the challenges of evangelization, the new evangelization, you could say, in the church today and why St. Thomas's theology is so vital and so helpful. Uh, and actually, I'm going to give kind of, if I can get to it all, six points briefly uh, for why I think St. Thomas helps. It is related to happiness. Um, I remember talking to a young priest many years ago in a place far, far away after we had done some evangelization in England uh, for a weekend retreat, and he said to me, you know, it's funny how much the battle is in the mind. We think the battle is in the heart, that conversion is in the heart. Of course, a lot of it, the battle is in the heart, to give ourselves to God, to bring other people to the conversion of heart, to discover Christ, to consent, to surrender, to trust, to love, to find peace. But it is also the case that half the battle is in the mind. And that means that actually a lot of the message of the church uh, regarding human happiness is about intellectual peace, intellectual happiness, which is actually a lot about perspective. A lot of the ways you live through life with a deeper, more spiritual joy, profundity, rootedness, uh, is through intellectual perspective, gaining perspective on all things. 
I think that we live in an age where there's a profound antipathy to the Catholic faith uh, in the public square and the media for good reason, because there's an innate sense of the secularist challenge that we are the single most serious adversary to a secular view of the world, and that the depth of Catholic teaching regarding human personhood, creation, the nature of reality, God, revelation, that the immorality, challenge on some deep level uh, the status quo. The attempt to take on the church is an attempt to banish one of the most serious enemies to a, per a perennial secularism. Pope Francis rightly is emphasizing or helpfully emphasizing the idea of going out to where our adversaries live and challenging them with a different vision of the reality of Christianity than the one that they have in their mind. And I think that St. Thomas is actually very helpful for this, this goal or this idea of what Pope Benedict called intellectual charity, of finding where the knots are tied in the souls of our contemporaries and trying to untie them and help people find a deeper peace, perspective, serenity, and happiness in the heart and mind through the truth. So I want to give like little touchstones here, six touchstones of where we who are all committed in some way to the evangelization of our culture can think about the truth not as a weapon, but as a medicine of the healing of the human mind and heart. So, first point, the crisis of the university. Never uh, in the history of the world has so many people spent so much money to study intensively in such elite institutions only to finish with so little plausible understanding of the meaning of their existence. <laughs> right? the, the crisis of the university is really very st striking and it is indicative of the deeper crisis of our culture. What do you see there? You see immense specialization, immense rigor, immense publication ambition and peer review, uh, and all kinds of professional qualification in a, really now you might say a thousand different intense specialities. It's like a buffet of every expertise on offer from the leading expert. But there's not usually a mediating discourse or a mediating philosophy that allows you to bring into unity all the various forms of learning. Take your freshman year, a class on anthropology and paleology, a class on Spanish literature, a class on calculus, a class on biology, and maybe the philosophy of John Locke. And how is it all united? No one ever told you. And at the end of four years, did they ever tell you? No, they never told you. And it costs a lot of money. And you're existentially disoriented. And there are some predominant theories that are floating around in the background, unstated or stated. One is a kind of a political liberalism, a la John Rawls. One is a kind of postmodern poly, um, uh, well, a sort of postmodern idea that we can't really come to any deep unifying discourse about reality. And one is a kind of scientism that thinks the whole universe uh, has to be, the, understanding the physical universe through physics, chemistry, and biology is the only real way to understand reality. St. Thomas, and I'm not going to get into the depths here, I'm just going to sort of touch on some principles. St. Thomas thinks that we have a differentiated and unified understanding of reality. The mind approaches reality, you might say, by different levels of being. 
this is a very technical idea. I'm going to try and make it simple. It's called the degrees of knowledge. Actually, the great book on this in the 20th century, which is Jack Maritain's book, is on sale out there. Some happy person should steal it. I mean, buy it. Um, St. Thomas thinks that we um, can selectively look at reality on deeper and deeper speculative levels. So like a, an initial level would be studying quantity, the quantity of things. And he says that's where you get the sciences of mathematics and the, observ the uh, observational sciences. So you get a kind of description of the quantitative physical aspect of reality. Then there's a deeper science that looks at nature's philosophy, where you study kind of natures and causes and uh, the capacities of things. And then he says there's a deeper level where you start to study the very existence of things, metaphysics, and ultimately that becomes theology. So there's like a depth perception reality, and you can look at it in different levels, mathematically, modern scientifically, uh, sort of philosophically, and then in an ultimate register kind of look at the very gift of being and start to think theologically about the giver of being, God. What even from this, St. Thomas develops a whole theory of like all the different sciences. I have a handout of some further reading on these things I'm going to talk about. In, so if you want to buy some, you know, get some books to read about St. Thomas, we'll get distribute the handout at the end. But one of the strengths of St. Thomas's view, which is absolutely contemporary, is he helps you see how different uh, scientific forms of understanding, scientific broadly understanding, broadly speaking, help you penetrate to reality at different levels, but they're all like mutually. There is particular expertise, but there's also kind of a, a deeper unity to things. So there's a way that the mathematician should be able to speak to the philosopher, and there's a way the philosopher should be able to speak to the theologian, and ultimately truth is one because the intellect is made for being, and all that exists, all that is real, can be known, even if it's known in different ways. This may seem like a trivial point, but I actually think if in the Catholic Church we have the capacity out of the Thomas tradition to speak to the integrity of human knowledge that is integrative and unifying, but is not, not theologically totalitarian, then we become interesting. And I think by theological, theologically totalitarian, what I mean is that because we believe about ultimate things about God, we should be able to railroad all the lesser disciplines and force them into narrow straitjackets of intellectual presuppositions. See, St. Thomas says, you know, the philosopher can't replace the mathematician. The mathematician has his own dignity. The theologian can't replace the philosopher or the mathematician. The scientist has to be respected. You know? The social scientist has to be respected. If you can figure out what exactly they study, and I think you can. But, you know, you know that's, a, that's a really technical point to begin with. But I think actually for young professionals, when you come out of the modern university system, you actually kind of on some visceral level know this is a problem. Second point the perceived opposition between modern science and biblical religion. I mean, if you get into the sort of, it's crude, the new atheism. It's not, uh, we need a better class of atheists. We really do. But if you get into the, if you get into the new atheism and you start to look at the, the blog sphere, I don't recommend ever reading anything written below the margins of the article. But if you do make that mistake, I won't even talk to you about if you're writing in those margins. But if, if you, if you know, if you read, if you read down there, what you see is that the, basically the presupposition is somehow the, the sort of 19th century presupposition uh, from Augustus Comte that science basically displaces religion. The children believe the Bible studies; the grown-ups believe in physics and biology, and the two neuralgic issues are uh, basically Big Bang cosmology and the question of whether the story that 
The cosmologists tell us about the origins of the universe perhaps 14 and a half billion years ago. Uh, it has displaced the Genesis, the Genesis uh, narrative regarding creation ex nihilo. And the other story, the other neuralgic point, th there are more than two, but the, the two main ones uh, is, is, of course, evolution and the, uh, and the, the question of the origins of man. St. Thomas is super important here for two reasons. There's a, I'm going to give you on the handout reference to a thinker called William, uh, named William E. Carroll. He, um, he's on the Public Discourse website a lot. He's got a lot of free articles online that are excellent. But basically, as uh, Bill Carroll has pointed out helpfully, uh, two, two brief points here. One, St. Thomas's fundamental distinction between primary causality and secondary causality. What does God give the creation. He gives it existence and being. So that anything we discover in the world scientifically through the modern sciences is something that exists. If it's real, if we've discovered it, it's real. If it's real, it has being. And if it has being, it has a giver of being. And secondly, as part of this, God giving things being doesn't entail making them merely passive. But part of the dignity of creatures is that they are created as true causes. God has caused us to be and has given us the gift of being free. So our free acts are the gift of God, and because God has given us freedom, we are truly free. It's not an opposition between God causing something and us being free. We're free because God has caused us to be as rational creatures are free. But likewise in the whole physical universe, God has caused the whole universe to be a universe of causes. So the idea that if you can have a confrontation between what you discover in the domain of causality uh, through the sciences and what God has given in creation is an absurdity. There's no conflict because everything you discover in the world, in the web, in the web of physical and chemical and biological causes is what God has given being and so has given to be causes of other things in the created order. And secondly, Aquinas has a huge you know, development of thinking about the soul as the form of the body so that we are one, we are one substance. Contrary to Descartes, you and I are not two things, my soul walking down one side of the sidewalk, my body walking down the other, or as he puts it, the two connected, the two substances connected by the pituitary gland, where as the Catholic Church is taught and as Aquinas argues philosophically, we are one being, body and soul, a spiritual animal in which the spiritual soul informs the body. But this gets into noetics. I mean, the way that the human noetics is like how we know stuff. Um, we know stuff through our senses. We know stuff through our brain. We know stuff through our sense memory. We know stuff as an animal knows stuff. You know, the way you throw the ball and the dog remembers where the, you know, knows where the ball went. And we work that way a lot too. We're like remembering where we put the coffee cup or something else, the glass of wine. Um, you know, so we, we work a lot through animal instinctuality and memory and sensate. And that could have developed, and it did, I think, through a long evolutionary process. But what science can never, by its very nature, talk about competently is the philosophical question of the immaterial soul. There was a passage from very developed hominids to the first human beings. And the passage is not one you can find under a microscope because what's new when you get rational human nature is spiritual soul. And that means conceptuality, that means language, that means free action, that means religion, that means ritual, it means games, it means marriage, it means a whole lot of things that are specifically human. And you're not going to be able to see it through the medium of the modern sciences. You can see it something somewhat paleologically because we can see that people started, um, you, you can see cave art and 
use of language and complex tools. Okay? But if you start to get those two principles right in Aquinas, primary causality, secondary causality, the soul is form of the body, but as a new presence of something in a, in a rational animal, you can actually, that's the beginning of unknotting all the false opposition between the Bible and modern science. And with those two tools from St. Thomas, with some work, you can actually, you know, and I think William Carroll's one of the best people doing this kind of work, you can show there's no conflicts, no profound conflicts. Third point, we live in an age in which absolute moral truth claims are perceived as arbitrary moralism. Absolute moral truth claims. Try, try posing, positing your, your own preferred, preferred Catholic absolute moral, claim, moral truth claims around the water cooler uh, at work. Okay, it's not going to be easy. You will be accused, if not of bigotry, at least sometimes, uh, of arbitrary moralism. Yeah, you know, sometimes we have to go through that, actually, to then go to the next step and say, well, you know, that's not true, and here's why, and be brave and evangelical and challenge people. But we definitely live in a time in which moral truth claims are perceived as largely arbitrary commandments, like basically a kind of, it comes, I think, from Kant, uh, an idea of a commandment theory of virtue, that the conscience proposes to us absolute moral truth claims that are in the forms of laws. And uh, the primary way we refer to those, to knowledge of those laws, what I should do, what I should never do, what must be done, what must never be done, is through in kind of intuitivism. And the, pro the problem is then, you have diverse intuitions. So that you get into the climate, uh, what you get is the culture of moral sincerity. Well, the way I feel about it is X. Now, I, if you feel differently about it, you know, you can do what you believe, but I'm going to do what I believe. And the important thing is everybody can do what he or she believes as long as nobody hurts anybody else, unless you're unborn or subject to potentially euthanasia, in which case you're fair game because you couldn't talk back. Right. So there's, um, there's this sort of arbitrary universal liberalism that emerges that is based on a kind of deep down despair despair of moral consensus. And we live in an age with profound moral non-consensus. This is Washington, D.C. We know this. This is like where we live. Um, now, I want to explain why briefly, but Thomistic moral theology is a lot like learning to play jazz. It's not really what our contemporaries think. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, and this is where I'm going to talk about happiness. Uh, St. Thomas thinks the moral life is primarily about the desire for happiness. The reason you try to act some ways and not other ways is to flourish as a human being, to be a happy human being. And the way we become happy is by love. It's loving rightly and well uh, and virtuously that we become happy. And the question then becomes, what do you love? Tell me where you dwell and I will tell you what you are. Tell me what you love and I, tell, I will tell you what you will become. So it's what, you, it's what you love and how you love, rightly or well or poorly and viciously, that determines the shape of your character. And this is really where the burden of human existence is. It's the burden of trying to become a person of happiness. And for St. Thomas, this is hard. Being really happy is difficult. It's a lifelong sort of journey, and it's precarious. It's actually fragile. He thinks happiness in this world is fragile, achievable, but fragile, and best achieved when we have a kind of deeply rooted happiness in the love of God, because God is unchanging. God's always there, and God's eternal. From this idea that we're made for happiness, Aquinas develops this whole idea of 
uh, the stabilization, the stabilization of our good desires for happiness through friendship with other human beings and with God, fortified by virtue. And the virtues are like these stable dispositions of acts we pose that strengthen us to live in uh, sort of poised, um, balanced, um, profound and stable friendship with God and with other people. You know the virtues, right? I mean, the cardinal virtues are temperance, uh, fortitude to endure when we have to endure, justice, to treat other people with justice is the first basis of friendship. Aquinas says, if you want to be friends with people, treat them justly and be affable. Affability is a kind of justice of showing other people kindness and recognizing their goodness. It's not yet friendship, but it's the beginning of friendship. And prudence. And prudence is knowing intellectually how to live rightly and well. And Aquinas thinks part of the way you become prudent is to ask people who are prudent for advice, you know, to talk to people who are smart about how to live, right? That's actually why a lot of people come speak to priests, and some of us try to be prudent, others are prudent. But anyway, the point is, I see as a priest, I see as a priest, like really, like one of the main things people are searching for when they're looking for happiness is they're looking for how to make prudent decisions. And then faith in God, hope in God, and charity toward God and neighbor. And the, like it's the development of this life that makes us happy. So then you get like difficult situations, you know. Um, my mother and my sister aren't talking. They're gonna be there at Thanksgiving. If I go home for Thanksgiving and I have to deal with my mother and my sister, I might have a breakdown where I have to kind of like tell my sister all the reasons I think she's really treated my mother badly. I don't know if I have the virtue to do this, da 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 you know. These are prudential decisions. Sometimes the brave thing to do is flee. Sometimes the brave thing to do is engage and ask for the grace to kind of endure, right? But this is where it becomes like jazz, right? So a, j a great jazz uh, musician has to know the canon of ordinary music. I mean, when they, these guys who get in a room, five guys who get in a room, even if they've rehearsed, but often when they haven't rehearsed, and they start playing in one key, and then they start moving down a key, and then they move up three keys, and then they start innovating. They are listening to each other, and then they're moving together with this, it's this impro to improvise in jazz at a very high level requires a lot of refinement, mechanics, and knowledge of the art of playing in a more canonical, predictable way. It's because they've mastered that level that when they get to the hard cases of innovation, they can kind of move with the flow of the music. And that's what the actual moral, uh, moral thinking of Aquinas is about. It's about like trying to acquire the virtues enough and prudence enough that when you're in these like delicate situations, you can actually preserve love in all things. You can, you can say, stay in the stream of jazz-like harmony as situations do move in a sort of jerky, unpredictable fashion to remain in love and in prudence. And the, the, the prudent, you know, moral theology for Aquinas is about kind of getting into that stream of knowledge and love and staying there and staying in the rhythm of the Holy Spirit. It's a very attractive vision. I didn't come up with a jazz metaphor, by the way. That's a Dominican who teaches in Freeburg named Michael Sherwin, who was friends with Dave Brubeck uh, and got him an honorary doctorate in theology because um, Jay Brubeck converted to Catholicism and wrote a jazz mass. I never went, but, you know, the thing is that I'm not advocating jazz masses, but it's an interesting thought experiment. But no, but you see, the point is, you know, the point is that there's a kind of depth there that is just not the hollow moralism. It's not the hollow moralism that people take us to be advocating. Fourth point, St. Thomas teaches you how to believe that the Bible is revelation without becoming either a fundamentalist or a, a liberal Protestant. I mean, the big problem in our culture with the Bible, is, especially in the United States, is that in some ways the Bible has been taken captive either by a kind of 19th century Protestant positivism that is obsessed 
in an unhealthy way too much with a kind of material literalism. How many soldiers in David's army died that day? It's not, it's not entirely fair to say the evangelicals that that's like exactly what they think is the most important thing. But there are theories of inspiration from the 19th century that have gotten into the water and have been very prevalent, which have made these kinds of questions become obsessive questions in the treatment of the Bible. And of course, when you get into the six days of creation, which is clearly symbolic, or uh, the questions of um, you know, Methuselah living for 900 years, you get the Bible taken captive by weird 19th century positivist theories that think above all it's supposed to be a blueprint of technical facts, which is what none of the fathers of the church thought about the Bible. Um, or, and then you get the counter-reaction, which is the Bible's a human document. Well, yes, it is, but it's not just. Um, and it's about social ethics. That's what the Bible's about, it's about social ethics, which it is, but not just. St. Thomas goes to the essential. What is the Bible about for St. Thomas? Finding out who God is. The Holy Trinity wanted from all eternity to create us so that God could share with us his Trinitarian beatitude and reveal to us who God is. If God is the father of our intellect, he made us so that we could enter into the inheritance of his beatitude and inherit knowledge of who God is in his own eternal happiness. That's just a much more interesting idea than any of this kind of, you know, sort of materialist positivism of fundamentalism um, or the skepticism about the Bible. Why is the Bible written for St. Thomas? To teach us what it means that God chose to become a human being. What does it mean that God became human? What is the human face of God? You have four portraits in the Bible of the human face of God. Why did God become a human being? St. Thomas, it's the first question he asks in his treatise on Christ. Why did God become a human being? That's an interesting biblical question. He's interested in the nature of grace and original sin. What is this mysterious network of wounds I'm carrying around in myself? How does grace help me to be unburdened or to live in the light of the mercy of Christ? He's interested in understanding the law in the Old Testament as showing us our capacity for love and virtue and how our human nature can flourish by avoiding evil and doing good. I mean, so he's got a very deep reading of the Bible. And it's very, actually, this is some of the most accessible stuff in the Summa Theologiae you can get online. And I have that in my notes I'm going to give you. You know, some of the most accessible stuff is to read Aquinas in the Bible. Uh, it's really profound. It's very accessible. It's very helpful. Fifth, the sacramental church. The sacramental church. We live in an age of sort of weird, Gnostic, a corporeal spiritualism. What does it mean to say you're spiritual, not religious? I mean, it must mean something, but it can't be good. <laughs> because the last time I checked, we're bodies. And what, you know what religion is about? It's about being spiritual in your physical postures through worshiping God in physical actions. The traditional list of things that are religious are devotion, prayer, um, sacrifice, adoration, physical gestures of adoration, oaths, ties, belonging to a community, being committed, you know. So religion is something you live as a, a rational animal, an animal that is radically religious and made for God through religious gestures. Aquinas, in his theory of the sacraments, has two really important insights to help us with false problems we have about spiritualism and then also in Christianity denominationalism. Oh, you know, it's fine that there are a thousand different churches. That's fine. Jesus really wanted that, didn't he? 
I will that you all be one. But just everyone, but the thing about being one is if you don't like being one with those people, go found your own church. And, you know, there's like also a thousand ways of being Catholic. You know, there's the magisterium version. That's a nice buffet line version. But, you know, if you don't like that, there's a slimmer diet version of Catholicism. You make your own spiritual church. We'll divide all the parishes up according to different strategies and tastes. Uh, I mean, our consumer culture, our consumer culture is ruining our sense of religious um, of allowing ourselves to be challenged, you know? We talk about in religious life, fraternal correction, like being able to hear the correction of a brother who comes to talk to you uh, about a thing you need to change. And it's a mercy, if it's said well and rightly, of somebody to give us a fraternal correction. Well, you know, normative religion is God's fraternal correction to humanity, but it's a mercy. God is giving us normative forms by which we can live together with God in community. And the sacramental theology of Aquinas is about, he, he makes two great points. One, he makes more than two, but two that are very pertinent. One is that we are, as animals, in need of being touched by the grace of God. And the sacraments are the, we're receiving what's most transcendent, and what we, what we most need is God and the life of God. And, it, and yet it's transcendent, it, 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 it evades us. But we receive what's most transcendent and what we most need in the most connatural way. Not even through a book. I think that's a very beautiful way, it's scriptures. But through, through touch. You know, it's very interesting to watch a baby be baptized and to think about, like, divine life is being infused into the immaterial soul of this child because we're pouring water on its head. Or the Eucharist, you know, you can hold it in your hand, you can receive it on your tongue, you're being nourished by the death of Christ. You're being nourished by the life of Christ, resurrected. That is very mysterious. But it's so, so simple. And it's so much about receiving love from God in the most connatural way. And then grace does stuff, you know? Or someone says words of pardon over you. They, didn't actually, they don't actually beat you with baseball bats when you go into the confession. They just say little words over you, and your sins are forgiven. It's amazing. So we receive through the most connatural forms. But also, secondly, this tissues together the church as a community it's not a church of my own making in my own mind, but the church that Christ founded. We live in the church the apostles founded based on the apostolic succession of the bishops and priests. Yes, yes, the mediocre bishops and priests and the mediocre lay people, the mediocre people of God, but kept alive through this tissue of sacraments that's maintained that keeps us as a family bound together in the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's serious religion. And you know what? Human beings deep down, they put up protests and they say, oh, it's too monolithic. They want to be challenged. There's no point in proposing to other people an unserious religion. And Aquinas' sacramental vision gives you a serious vision to propose to people. The sacraments are causes of grace. God causes grace in the soul through this set of physical gestures that Christ gave the apostles and that the apostles gave the church and that the church brings to us. My last point, St. Thomas helps us. To, we live in a culture that has a very difficult time understanding contemplation. And St. Thomas helps us see why contemplation is so important to our happiness. We do contemplate. There's low grade, like, okay, so I'll talk about contemplation in a moment and I'll tell you low grade, high grade. So Heidegger, Martin Heidegger has an interesting point about the influence of technology on the modern intellect. 
Uh, I don't think hydrogen is infallible, but this is an interesting insight. And he's got he's got a number of them. Um, he basically has the idea that because of the development of modern sciences and then the technology that accompanies it, a lot of us basically interact with reality administratively through the tools technology places at our service. The key example for us, this is since Heidegger wrote, is the computer and the web and email. So our intellects get used to using tools that uh, allow us to transform the world that are powerful. The thing about tools is they can only be useful if you can dominate them intellectually. So you become a certain kind of person intellectually if all you ever think about is a medium in which you dominate. And what you become is a person of efficiency. The person who uses tools well in order to dominate reality and order it, ordain it correctly well, is an efficient person. It's good. But then you get the, you get the intellectual milieu of efficiency. And you lose the intellectual milieu of gratuity of something that's given that's from before you can dominate it. And contemplation is basically begins when domination ceases. If I can dominate, I'm not contemplating. When I start to contemplate, the problem is I'm not intellectually dominating. So a simple but very elevated issue uh, example is, is pictorial art. You know, you go to the museums and people sitting there and they're staring. Now maybe they're just trying to look pretentious and important and intelligent. I don't actually think it's easy to say what exactly they're doing. But it is interesting. I mean, you know, you look at other animals, they don't do this. This has to do with being a rational animal. And we produce pictorial art and then we look at it. And what we do is we contemplate it. You know, we contemplate it. We think about, wow, oh, that's very profound. That's interesting. What's going on there? Oh, what's, the, and you know, the, and the, what the, the tour guide, if they're good, is trying to help you do is contemplate it more profoundly. Sometimes it's more thinking. Sometimes it's just seeing the pictorial beauty. Sometimes it's seeing the spiritual beauty, right? That's just an example. It's kind of an elevated example. I think the low grade is Xbox. I mean, I think what, I mean, Xbox is a big problem in our culture, you guys. If you have one, you should throw it in the trash. Uh, I mean, it's prolonged adolescence, but it's really what it is deep down is it's escapism. And I know I, I need to escape too. I, I'm looking for an escape. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to find one, but you know, I'm still in this universe. But I mean, people come home, people come home stressed and they play Xbox because you can in a way displace your stresses and worries, but also you can give your intellect over into something where it no longer has to try to stressfully dominate a situation, but can can just go with the flow of looking at stuff. Televisions like this too. So, but the deeper forms of contemplation happen through friendship. In friendship, you're in front of a reality superior to you. Another human being, every human being, has some qualities that I don't have. And it's true of me with regards to every other human being. There's something distinct about every human being that has a quality to it. That means you, as much as you understand a human person, which is the most interesting thing, natural reality in the world, as much as you understand a human person, you never really can, you can never, if, if you begin to think you have a knowledge of the other that dominates, you're in error. This is the problem with ideologies that run, explain the human person reductively, be they scientistic, Marxist, Freudian. The human being is always more than a particular intellectual ideology can, can come to understand. And so the, the norm for Aquinas, you begin to contemplate when you meet a good that your intellect has to ponder and can't simply understand completely. And this is all the more true with the truth, with the whole mystery of being in the cosmos, and with God. We live in a universe that actually invites us to a sense of studious wonder. Not just wonder like, oh, who can really say? It's all so mysterious. And, you know, I'm going to go back now and drink my coffee and play Xbox. No. 
We live in a universe that invites studious wonder. It's a wonder in which we may study more deeply the mystery. Who will ever say that they have finished thinking about what a human person is? Who will ever say they finished thinking about the mystery of existence and being or the universe's beauty? Who will ever say they finished thinking about the mystery of God? And then there's theological contemplation, the contemplation of the mysteries of the church, the mystery of the life of Christ, the mystery of the Holy Trinity, the mystery of the Eucharist, the mystery of the Blessed Mother. We live in a world where, in fact, Aquinas thinks the highest nobility of our intellect is that we're made for contemplation. That's, that doesn't pay. Nobody's going to pay you for that, really. I mean, even though people are very give donations to, sometimes to contemplative nuns. I mean, that, there's a certain kind of um, recalling to us of the essential in the contemplative life. And the contemplative life, traditionally, Dominican spirituality teaches, is available to every human being by virtue of faith. If you have the grace of faith, you can live the contemplative life. If you have the Eucharist, you can live the contemplative life. If you have the Rosary and the Blessed Virgin Mary, you can live the contemplative life. And this is like the deepest salve placed on the wound of the human heart. Because, I'm gonna finish now by talking about happiness. The human heart is only at peace and rest when it finds an ultimate good in which it can be stabilized with joy. And that really, in the end, as much as that can be friendship, it can be marriage and children, it can be meaningful work, it can be um, the love of the search for the truth, natural and supernatural. The ultimate rest of the human heart is in God. And so, God, you're not gonna ever dominate. You can only approach through a studious wonder, through contemplation, through learning, uh, through devotion, through religion. And St. Thomas sort of gives us clues for how to sort of live in this world while thinking about the mystery of this world in light of God unto God. It's what he calls wisdom, to think about all things in light of God and for God, and to be returning to God, to be on the pilgrimage in this world, headed back toward God, intellectually trying to think about all things in light of God, and trying to find joy through contemplating God in faith, thinking about God studiously in faith. And it, it heals the heart because it gives the heart a place of rest. I think we have to find ways to bring contemplation to our culture. And actually, I think because of how dehumanizing a lot of modern culture is to the human mind and heart, contemplation is something very powerful. Eucharistic adoration is one of the ordinary forms of contemplation at work in the church that converts people all the time because it's such a profound encounter, a contemplative encounter with the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So becoming people who have a habit of contemplation. Uh, St. Thomas helps us with that. Um, there was an Eastern Greek father who talked about the human being living in the world, developing what he called a little chapel of the heart. Not the chapels that we are in like this one here, which is beautiful, or the large churches that we pray in, but the chapel that we carry about, with Catherine Siena also called the interior cell the chapel of our heart where we live in unity with God. You could also talk about a little chapel of the mind. The mind as a place where we are trying to see the world in light of God and give homage to God in our mind and therefore live in a sort of stable happiness and wisdom by thinking about reality in light of God. It's kind of like the whole world is our church. The whole world is teaching us the truth about God. The whole world is bringing us into harmony and communion with God and peace of heart through the truth. And I think St. Thomas is actually you know, very helpful to us for that today and for the evangelization.
that will procure in our culture. I'm going to open the floor to questions. We'll take questions for just maybe five or ten minutes, and then I'm going to give you a little handout about St. Thomas. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, so St. Thomas and the Catholic Church generally distinguish very strictly between natural contemplation and supernatural contemplation. Natural contemplation has lots of registers. I gave the banal example of, well, banal, normal, more kind of accessible example of the kind of a kind of contemplation of art, of pictorial art, but also kind of contemplation that happens in human relationships or friendship. We don't totally dominate, but kind of. So those are natural examples. Um, Aristotle, arguably, it's a kind of controversy about how to read Aristotle. Arguably, does think the highest contemplation is natural contemplation of God. That's to say, to know something of what God is through His effects. Uh, and so there is, as Saint Thomas holds, a philosophical contemplation. He writes a lot about it. He says the, nat the philosophers, the pagan philosophers, could achieve a certain kind of natural happiness, it's, and he calls it an imperfect happiness, because it's indirect. We don't see God face to face. We know him through his effects. Now, there's a subtle question then about, you know, what really does this or that school within Hinduism believe about God? Buddhism, not necessarily positing God. That's another story. You know, or certain kinds of very high mysticism you find in certain traditions in Islam or Jewish mysticism. And so there's, you know, intricate questions there. But right, I mean, the church holds uh, with Aquinas, there is a natural contemplation, and it nobles man. That's why the great religious traditions tell us in a very secular world something about our humanity that we, we've lost. John Paul II underscored that. I mean, the dialogue with other religions is not just about uh, Christianity teaching them. It's also about the West recovering something of the dignity of our own religious nature. But then there's supernatural contemplation, and that's where God crosses the breach and comes to us to teach us who he is, not just indirectly through his effects, through the creation, but actually reveals himself to us. And there's the contemplation of the incarnation. There's the contemplation of God incarnate. There's the contemplation of uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the mystery of the Holy Trinity that's unveiled to us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Christian claim is that we can attain to a, a contemplation by grace that we cannot attain to just by our natural powers. That contemplation by grace is a privileged friendship with God, an intimacy with God we could not have without God. We could not have without Christ, and I would even say we cannot have without the Eucharist and the Virgin Mary. So there's a certain way in which the mystery of God has come toward us and made a higher kind of contemplative friendship possible. 
in faith. That's the, the Catholic claim. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, I actually think this is a place where, um, importantly, Catholicism gives us an aid to responding to the claim that mentally, severely mentally disabled human beings can't, cannot live that which is most distinctly human and therefore uh, have a, do not necessarily have the right to life, right? I mean, you know, in this very area of the country, Down syndrome children who have been born have gone down by, I think, 90% in the last generation or two. And that's, of course, because of genetic screening. So that's basically a judgment of the culture that they don't have lives worth living. I was, I got the answer to this myself. In a Benedict, I was on a retreat as layman in a Benedictine monastery 20, 20 years ago, and I had been on a pilgrimage carrying the cross in England toward, you know, toward, toward Canterbury, and I was you know, one of those kind of pious uh, things you do with other people to pray, to prepare for Easter, and I've been trying to pray. I've been breaking down and eating chocolate bars, and, you know, I mean, and I didn't feel particularly like I, you know, I, I felt like it wasn't going terribly well, but I have been trying. And I was in, and at this Benedictine monastery, which is Worth Abbey, they, they, all the families who have special needs children come for uh, the, the retreat for Easter for Holy Week. So we helped to, to care, take care of them, which is not really contemplation for you if you're taking care of a person with cerebral palsy and things like that. It's, but it's Christian, profoundly Christian. But I remember being in line watching com people go to communion, and there was a, a young girl with Down syndrome in front of me. It was, it was heartbreaking. She, I mean, it was very, very moving for me because I, you know, I was, I was a new Catholic at the time. I just converted myself. And I was thinking, you know, it's interesting. She's taking communion. And what's going on there? And she got down. I mean, all these people were going to communion in hand and taking communion, taking communion, taking communion. I'm not sure they were very pious. But this young girl got down on her knees and opened her mouth and waited for the host to be placed on her tongue. And there was palpable piety on her face, Down syndrome child. And I, I mean, she must have been 14, you know, 17 or something. And I thought to myself, ah, that's it they love more profoundly than many of us because they know what dependence is. I think that what you see in, in where the intellect cannot flourish as well because of the, the breakdown in the, in the hardware of the frontal lobe, the, the will can sometimes thrive more deeply because of the experience of profound dependency. And so in a special needs family, you're, all, you're, all, you're often going to see a child who's going to, because they cannot but trust, has experienced the depth of uh, dependency and love more profoundly than many very rationally functional human beings. And that can be supernaturalized contemplatively into the life of Christ in the sacraments. The L'Arche community was founded by John Vanier as a community for people with special needs as a contemplative community. Um, you know, so that's, it's interesting that that's been understood by John Vanier. Yes, sir. Yeah, I've got I've got a whole list of basic. In, uh, yeah, okay. So since you asked, they're gonna hand them out now. And I gave you some websites too. I mean, I think you have to search around, but there's different level. Thomism can go. Uh, it has a lot of there's a lot of floors in the in the uh, apartment building, and you don't want to start people off on the tenth floor. They get vertigo. 
but there's a there's a lot of first story and second story tomism so I have I put that put it in that order sort of on the list any other questions should we take one more no sure. yeah 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 yeah. Well, I do a lot of that. I'm an administrative person too. I mean, I do a lot of administration. I mean, I wish I was a contemplative. Yeah. You know, I have this conversation a lot, so it's, I really should have strong and strict answers to this. But I, I mean, very helpful answers to this. I, I think it's a huge challenge because, look, one of the great things about this country is people work hard in America. It's so noble, but they work really hard. <laughs> so, like, it's, it's there's uh, people who see you for spiritual direction. You see how much stress and they're under. They try to hold it together. I, I have to say, I often f greatly admire lay Catholics for doing so much in their spiritual life. Uh, despite or uh, against the backdrop or in the foreground of how much else they have to do. Uh, you know, I, my view is the best time to do the serious spiritual work you're going to do in the day is in the very, is early, the earlier the morning the better. It's very challenging. But I think, you know, I, I usually talk to people about mental prayer, silent prayer, 20 to 30 minutes of that a day, and hopefully before or after Mass. You know, so I, mean, I think in an ideal world you can figure out a way to pray, to, to practice silent prayer. Now, how you do that is another question. But practicing mental prayer, uh, usually with Lexio Divina, with reading the scriptures, because the, the scriptures are an avenue for contemplation. So I think there's a certain kind of contemplative reading of the Gospels of Paul, of the scriptures, that can lead into mental prayer. And I think that, coupled with daily Mass, is the best uh, starting point, if it's possible. If you had to choose one thing, Mass, and then adding mental prayer. And then, you know, other people, some people pray the rosary contemplatively, some people pray the office of liturgy, the hours contemplatively. Those things help. Uh, and I think some spiritual or intellectual reading help. Now, every, then, it, then arch, architecturally fitting that into any given life is a question of prudence. And it, I, you know, that's why people often want to talk to a priest about, like, well, I'm doing this, I think I could do that, maybe I should do that. And they, you know, they want to be held accountable, that kind of thing. And that's good. So, you know, I, I think it, then you have to kind of sculpt moments in. And friendships with people who are seeking God help. Because actually friendship has a way of sanctifying our emotional life, of bringing us into a sphere where, you know, if even the things I suffer, say, from work or life disappointment, I can take to someone else. That my, my emotions are discombobulated. I can take them to somebody else who shares my understanding of reality. And that even the, the sort of acceptance I have from them, the feeling that they understand me, brings me back into a kind of peace. You know, so I think those things are, you know, there's a, there's a lot of elements that help, but, the, you know, figuring out how to coordinate them in one life is a challenge. Okay, I'm going to liberate you. Okay. Um.